Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. It is good to be with you this Easter Sunday. Uh, if you are new or visiting, I just want to say welcome. It is good to be with you. If there are any, is there anything that we can do to help you get connected to the community here at River City, we would love to do that. Come find me or, or Becky or any of the people that you saw on the slides, the small group leaders. We'd love to help you get connected to the community here. Uh, this, uh, this year we have been walking our way through the Gospel of Matthew together, and, and this morning we find ourselves at the very end of the book of Matthew in chapter 28, and, and in our passage this morning what we find is the, the central claim on which all of Christianity depends. It's kind of like the, the bottom piece of the Jenga set. Like if you take the bottom one out, no matter, no matter what happens, that sucker's fallen, right? And so this, what, what we come to this morning is the central claim on which all of Christianity is founded. And it is simply this, that Jesus rose from the dead. You see, Christianity is not built on good teaching. It is not built on moral principles or philosophical ideals. You see, it is built on the claim that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that three days later, Jesus rose from death, not resuscitated, not not reincarnated, resurrected. It's so important that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes and that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins and therefore you have fallen asleep in Christ, also have perished. And, and if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. You see what the Apostle Paul is, is writing, saying this, if Jesus is still dead, then we're just pitiful fools who are wasting our time. There is no reason for us to have hope beyond the grave, and sin and death win, and there is, there is no good news left. The rest of the New Testament writers, they affirm these truths as they root the foundations of the Christian faith in the resurrection of Jesus, every last one of them. And so the ultimate question that we must answer is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Did he rise or not? And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not sure about how to answer that question. Maybe you have some questions or some doubts. And I just want to encourage you, that's okay. You see, anything worth believing is worth questioning. But I want to encourage you this morning, don't let your questions go unanswered. Don't, don't let your questions just turn into unsettled cynicism. Wrestle with your doubts. Seek answers to those questions. You see, there is no more significant question that we can answer you see, maybe you're here this morning, and you don't have doubts, and you don't wrestle with the resurrection. It's something you've just always believed, you have always hoped in. And I want to encourage you this morning, don't, don't settle for just pat answers about that. Don't, don't have an unquestioning faith. You see, blind faith is not what Jesus is asking for, and it's not what honors him. The disciples had questions. They, they, they needed evidence as well, and Jesus offered it to them. You see, a blind faith, an unquestioning faith is not helping you or the people that you want to share Jesus with that might have real questions themselves. And so this morning, whether you are a skeptic or a believer or whether you are somewhere in between, I just want to encourage you to press into your doubt this morning or, or even to push back against the, the faith that you may have had this morning. And I want to encourage you to determine good reasons to believe in the resurrection or not to believe it. Because if Jesus really did defeat death, it changes everything. And so as we study Matthew's testimony regarding Jesus' resurrection this morning, I, I just want to pose three questions. Three questions that I think are going to help us to answer the ultimate question. They're just simply this. Is it possible? Is it true? 
And what difference does it make? Is it possible? Is it true? And what difference does it make? You see, in, in answering those questions, I want to show you that believing in the resurrection of Jesus is not only plausible, it is indeed, in fact, the best explanation of the evidence we have both inside of the Bible and outside of it. And it's not just good news that changed the world 2,000 years ago. It is good news that is intended to change our lives every day. And so with that in mind, let's pray. And we'll open God's word together and study it as we, as we celebrate the resurrection this morning. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful for you. God, we're grateful for your word, that you would keep it for us, that you would, that you would give it to us so that we might know you and that we might know your heart and that we might have the, the truth about what happened and, and what life is like. And so, God, we are so grateful for that. God, and as we come together this morning, we just say we need, to, we need you to be the one that speaks to us. God, I don't have any power or any authority God, but you do, and you have all power, and you have all authority. And so, God, I ask that you might fill me with your spirit so that, I would, that what I have to say this morning would be from you, that it would have power and life, not because I say it, but because it is true in you. God, and we need you. We need you to shape our hearts. We need you to give us soft and moldable hearts that can receive the truth from your word. God, God only you can make those things possible. And so, God, we pray for our good, but ultimately for your glory that you would. And so we look forward to our time together with you this morning. We are so grateful for it. Amen. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 28 this morning. We're in verses 1 through 15. And after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. And so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. That would have just been amazing, right? Greetings, he said. And they came to him and they clasped his feet and they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go into Galilee. There they will see me. And while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had went to the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were sleeping. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. You see, in order to answer the question, did Jesus rise from the dead, we need to first begin, I think, by asking about the possibility of the resurrection in the first place. And there's just two things I want to I articulate as we begin this morning. And the first is this. I want to just begin by highlighting that facts are not self-interpreting. 
You see, your worldview, your belief system, it determines the range of interpretations that you can come to when observing the facts. The response of the religious leaders in this passage it demonstrates this perfectly, right? At the end of chapter 27, Jesus had been crucified, he was buried, and in an effort to totally put this whole Jesus issue behind them, they go to Pilate and, and, and they ask him, can we make extra preparations? We want to make sure that there is no possible way that something could happen to this body, that, that this lie that Jesus... Jesus was saying from the beginning that he was going to rise in three days. We want to make sure there is no way that happens. And so Pilate agrees and he tells them at the end of verse chapter 27, go seal the tomb as best as you know how, and you can be guaranteed they did the best they knew how. And then on Sunday morning, despite everything they had done, despite the testimony of the guards who they had sent to guard the tomb, they could not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. In verse 13, instead of allowing the evidence to inform their view, they doubled down on their belief system, right? They doubled down and they bribed the guards who reported the very fact of Jesus' resurrection to them. And the question is, why? Because what was true for the religious leaders of Jesus' day is that resurrection was off the table. You see, the resurrection of anyone was off the table. It was not something that they could believe was even possible. And so no matter what the facts were, they could not believe it because their worldview was the thing that shaped their interpretation of the facts. You see, in the Western worldview that we live in is, is not altogether different than, than the one that we see here in the religious leaders. It begins with the assumption not just that the resurrection is impossible, but that anything supernatural is impossible often going so far as to definitively say that there is nothing other than what we can see or touch or experience. Conversely, as Christians, we start with the, with the belief that there is a supernatural reality beyond what we can see and feel and touch. Furthermore, what Christians begin with the assumption that God created life, and if God can create life, it is certainly within the realm of his authority to resurrect it. And so the question is, when we examine the facts this morning, what, when we examine the evidence surrounding the resurrection, both inside of the Bible and outside of it, will we allow the facts to shape our worldview, or will our worldview be the interpreter of the facts? You see, facts are not self-interpreting. And secondly, when it comes to asking about the possibility of the resurrection, most people think that the burden of proof here is entirely on Christians. And that is true. There, there is a burden of proof as, as we think about what we believe and, and, and defending that and articulating that. But there is also a burden of proof for those who say they do not believe in the resurrection. One pastor says it this way, There is no question, even amongst the most secular of scholars, that around 2,000 years ago, an entirely new religious movement and community was formed almost overnight. And immediately, hundreds of people started claiming that Jesus rose from the grave. And even when it meant that they would die for claiming that, in a fast-growing movement of people that now makes up what some estimate as more than a third of the world's population survives to this day. So how do you explain that? You see, if you don't believe in the resurrection, there is a burden of proof here for you to come up with some real answer that explains the nature of those facts. You see, the ultimate test of any worldview is the reality in which we live in. And the question is, which worldview actually answers the question of the reality we live in? Reality is always the test. 
And so with the burden of proof on both sides this morning, what I want to do is examine the evidence that we have surrounding the resurrection and just ask the question, what is the best explanation of the evidence we have? What is the best explanation that, that is the most plausible? What explanation is most likely to be true? And I use that language of, of plausible or most likely to be true because I just want to be straight with you. The honest truth this morning is that no one can prove with 100% certainty that Jesus rose from the dead or that he didn't. It's not a thing that you can prove with 100% certainty, but as we'll see this morning, I do think that the evidence leaves us with an incredibly high degree of certainty. And so let's take a look this morning. You see, the evidence surrounding the resurrection can be broken down into three main categories. Most, most commentators, most, most historians, they kind of break it down into these three main categories. And the first is biblical evidence. The biblical evidence We see that here in verses 5 and 6. There's this angel who speaks to the two Marys who have come to Jesus, his tomb, and he tells them, I know that you're looking for Jesus, but he's not here. He is risen just as he said. You see, Jesus repeatedly and emphatically and clearly said, I will die, I will be buried, and three days later I will rise. Matthew records for us five separate times in which Jesus articulates that truth in no uncertain terms. The Old Testament as well foreshadowed this and it said that this is what would happen to the Messiah. You can look in places like Psalms chapter 16 or chapter 22. And so the first type of evidence we have is biblical evidence. Jesus said, he re- it was recorded for us that he said he would die and he would rise from the dead. And the second type of evidence we have this morning is, is eyewitness evidence. In verse 11, the guards who were scared stiff by the angel in verse 4, they went and they told the religious leaders. They gave their testimony about what had happened to them. Additionally, after telling the women that telling these women that Jesus wasn't there, the angel invites them in verse 7 to go come and see the place where he lay. And then he tells them to go to the disciples and tell them what they've saw and tell them that Jesus was going ahead to meet them in Galilee. And then on their way, they are the first people to encounter the risen Jesus in the flesh. And this is astounding. You see, when, when you and I in today's world, when we hear that women were the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, it just, we don't even bat an eye to that. See, but the truth is, is that the testimony of women in the ancient world wasn't even considered viable in the court of law. And so there is absolutely no reason that you record that two women were the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection unless that is what happened. But these guards and, and these two women... They are just a few of the more than 500 people that Scripture records for us that that saw Jesus alive after his death and burial. And this flies in the face of the claim that some make that that the resurrection is just kind of a hallucination. Just, spoiler alert, 500 people don't hallucinate the same thing at the same time. That's not how hallucination works. that's, That's not a thing. Furthermore, we read in Acts that that a guy named Saul who was so opposed to Jesus that he was literally hunting down and murdering Christians, he encounters the risen Jesus and he goes from being a, a Christian murderer to a Christian missionary who is himself murdered for being a Christian. You see, your most ardent opponent does not become your most ardent proponent after he has already defeated you unless the resurrection is actually real. 
And so we've seen the biblical evidence and, and the eyewitness evidence. And there's a last kind of evidence that we see. And I would describe it this way. It's, it's circumstantial evidence or, or corroborating evidence. See, I love lawyer shows. If I wasn't a pastor, I'd really want to be a lawyer. I'm probably not smart enough to be a lawyer, but I would want to. It's just, it just I just think it's the greatest thing. I just love, the, the, I love that, right? But one of the things I know is that no good lawyer bases their case on circumstantial evidence alone. But every good lawyer backs up their case with circumstantial evidence that supports their claims. You see, one of the best courtroom scenes in all of movie history, in A Few Good Men, Lieutenant Caffey, he uses circumstantial evidence to confirm his suspicions about the situation uh, surrounding the death of, of Marine under this guy's name is Colonel Jessup's, under his charge. And, he, and, he, and he's questioning Colonel Jessup in this scene, and, and he asks him, he says, if, if you had instructed your men that Santiago wasn't to be touched, and then your men always follow your orders, why would he be in any danger? Why would you have to move him off the base? Why was he in any danger in the first place? And he, and he goes on to say, that circumstance, he says, you ordered the code red, didn't you? And then you have the famous line, I want the truth, you can't handle it, Right? You see, it makes sense why Colonel Jessup would lie about the situation surrounding Santiago's death in, in that movie, A Few Good Men. And it makes perfect sense why the religious leaders would spread a lie about Jesus' body being stolen. But you know what makes absolutely no sense whatsoever? That Jesus' disciples would lie about Jesus' resurrection. There was absolutely no benefit for them. They, in claiming that Jesus was dead and resurrection holding to it, they didn't get fame, they didn't get prestige, they did not get money, they did not get power instead. What they got was mistreated, broke poverty, and eventually murdered. You see, 11 of the 12 apostles, including the guy that replaced Judas, they died martyrs' deaths. And John the 12th, they tried boiling him alive, and he still wouldn't recant for following Jesus, and so they exiled him on an island by himself. You see, and none of those men recanted. How many of you, if they decided, you know what, we're going to boil you in oil unless you recant, right? And if you were telling a lie, it would definitely be at that point for sure that you would give that up, right? You would give that up. You see, these men, they had everything to gain by recanting, but none of them did. They said, kill me if you want. You can't scare me with death. Jesus has already conquered it, and I know what happens to those who die. We come back. You see, that brings us to the second thing, and that's the transformed character of the disciples. You see, before the resurrection, these guys were cowards. Peter, in, Acts, Peter is, Peter in, in Matthew 26, he won't even admit to a teenage girl that he was even associated with knowing Jesus. And then after the resurrection, what we see is that there is absolutely nothing you could do to keep these guys from talking about Jesus. In Acts 3, the religious leaders, they arrest Peter and they beat him and they threaten him. And he just says, yeah, I'm just going to keep talking about Jesus because there's no way I'm listening to you instead of God. Church history records for us that Peter would not recant his testimony about Jesus. And so they crucified him upside down. How do you explain the transformation of these men apart from the resurrection of Jesus. 
You see, the resurrection, if it was a myth or if it was a lie, you wouldn't have seen these guys suddenly get more bold and more courageous. They aren't just going to suddenly start being willing to die for something they weren't even willing to be, admit they were associated with just days before. Furthermore, you have to ask the question, why did the day of worship change? Orthodox Jews for a millennium worshipped on Saturday. It was the day of the Sabbath. But after Jesus' resurrection, good Orthodox Jews, many of which made up the, the society of the early church, they started worshipping not on Saturday, but on Sunday. Because that was the day of Jesus' resurrection. And what happened is they had to meet early in the morning. We're talking like 5 a.m., right? Sunday was a work day for them. Saturday was their day off. Sunday was a work day for them. Could you imagine if you started a religion and the only meeting time you could have was 5 a.m. on a Monday? That's not going well for you, right? Like you, People aren't lining up for that action, right? No matter how much of a morning person you are, you're not signing up for that. Unless the resurrection of Jesus is real. You see, what we see is that the early church spread like wildfire throughout the world. And they worshipped on Sunday morning, 5 a.m., early, before the sunrise. What's the reason you give yourself to that unless Jesus had not risen from the dead? Furthermore, there is no tomb that people go to to honor Jesus. You can go to the tombs of the leaders of every other world religion. And what you will find are shrines and memorials. Whether it's to Abraham or to Buddha or to Muhammad, there are more than 2 billion people who claim to worship Jesus. And yet there is no tomb. Why? Because Jesus is not there, just as he said. You see, his body was not stolen. A giant rock, a governmental seal, armed marines. You're not getting past that. Jesus wasn't buried in the wrong tomb. If they thought that that was the case, they could have just went and asked Joseph of Arimathea, hey, was this your tomb or was it a different one? It's not like a hard case to solve. That's not what happened. You see, no, there is no shrine and there is no memorial and there is no tomb to which people go and celebrate because Jesus isn't there. And if that were not enough, what we have is the the corroborating evidence that Jesus' own family worshipped him as God. Jesus' mother is in the upper room with the mourning disciples, all of which who see the resurrected Jesus as he appears to them and he eats a meal with them and they worship him. What's, more, what's even more astounding than that is that Jesus' two brothers, James and John, they end up writing two books of the Bible themselves that praise Jesus as God themselves. Have you ever thought to yourself, I wonder if my brother's God? No, you've never thought that. You might have thought, hmm, I think he might be Satan, but not God, right? Like, <laughs> like you've never thought that, right? What would it take for you to think that your brother was God, right? It would take at least a resurrection, wouldn't it? It would take at least that much. You see, what I hope you see this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus is not just one of the ways we could explain the evidence that we have. It is the only explanation that makes any sense at all. And so the question is, why does that matter? Why does that even matter? What, hap- what, what difference does it make if Jesus rose or if he didn't? You see, if you're a Christian, you understand that, right? If Jesus didn't rise, we've wasted our time here. We can pack it up. I have already wasted enough of your time. We can be done and finished and just go ahead and go home, right? 
But maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I don't even know where I'm at with Jesus. Like, I don't even know what I think about Jesus. Why does that matter? I need to tell you this, right? See, Jesus did not just claim to be king of the Jews. You see, what Jesus claimed is that he was the king of the universe. That his authority went into every nook and cranny and corner of the entire universe. That he is God of everything. You see, how you answer the question about whether Jesus died or he didn't, it changes everything. You see, if Jesus didn't die, then we've just wasted our time. But if he did, if he rose from the grave, that means that the resurrection is the most important event in all of human history. It means that Jesus really is who he said he was. And it really means that our lives are worth giving him the worship that he deserves. It is worth us surrendering to him. It is worth us hoping in him and trusting him and coming to him to be the one who can forgive us. You see, but it's not just good news that changed the world 2,000 years ago. It is good news that changes our lives today. You see, I think what happens for a lot of us is is we we talk often about Jesus' death. And we are so grateful that Jesus would die, that he might remove our sins from us, that he might pay the penalty that our sinful rebellion deserved, that he might absorb God's just wrath for our sin. But we we don't talk about the resurrection and its implications all that much. It's kind of like a door that we've just left closed in our lives. And I just want to say this morning, that is a door that we cannot afford to leave closed. You see, for many of us, I'm afraid the implications and the power of Jesus' resurrection is a door that we have left closed in our lives. We don't have time to go down the whole list this morning, but I just want to highlight three things for us as we think about the implications of the resurrection for our lives, not just what we believe, but for our lives every day. And the first is simply this. Because Jesus rose again, you and I can have confidence and assurance. You see, we can have confidence and assurance in the trustworthiness of everything else that Jesus said. You see, Jesus kept his word to defeat death and to overcome death. And if he can do that, then he can certainly do everything else that he claimed he can do. We can trust that he, like he said, he is God. That, Like he said, that he can forgive sin. That he is going to prepare a place for us. And that one day we can trust and be confident that he is coming back. And in the meantime, we can trust and be confident that he has sent his spirit to empower us with everything we need for a life of godliness. And that brings us to the second thing this morning. You see, because Jesus rose again, you and I have power to live today. You see, as one commentator writes, he says this, if Jesus had just died for us, then you and I, we would just be forgiven corpses. But through the resurrection, the very life of God has broken into the world to give us life that is new in character and eternal in duration. Romans 8, 11 says it this way. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 reads this way. The apostle Paul says, I want to know Jesus. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. You see, without the resurrection, you and I, we have no power at all. We have no hope. We have no strength. You see, but with the resurrection, we have access to all the power we could possibly need to live the life that Jesus has called us to live as his kingdom ambassadors. Without his resurrection, the mission he has called you to is a suicide mission. It's one that you cannot achieve. It's one that you cannot win. It's one that you cannot do. And, but if Jesus is raised, the same power that raised him is accessible to those who are living in him. And third, 
Because Jesus rose again, we have a hope and a purpose that can never be shaken. You see, Jesus defeated death, and in, and in faith, by faith in him, we can trust that so will we. We don't need to fear death. We don't have to run from it. What we can believe in confidence is that Jesus has already won. You see, our hope isn't in something in this world. You see, Jesus' resurrection, it points us to the ultimate day when all things will be resurrected. We look at the world around us, and we see it full of pain and hurt and suffering. We see all of those things, and what Jesus is resurrection it's confident and assurance what it points us to is that there will be a day when king jesus will resurrect all things when he will return all things to the way that he intended them to be in the first place you see the resurrection it means that our hope isn't in something here and now that can be taken away it's in it's in something that is eternal first peter chapter one verses three through five it says this Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. See, this inheritance, he says, is kept for you in heaven who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You see, what Peter is telling us in that passage, he says, death doesn't have the last word. Sin does not have the last word. Suffering does not have the last word. Pain does not have the last word. Injustice does not have the last word. There's one who does, and his name is Jesus. And our life and our hope is kept in heaven by him. It is imperishable. It cannot be taken away. You see, in that kind of a hope, it frees us from a slavery to living for our own kingdom and for our own purposes. It frees us from a slavery to materialism and to a, an endless search for self-identity and self-expression. It frees us from the endless need to find pleasure and fulfillment and satisfaction in what, whatever we think that it has. And instead, it gives us a meaning and a purpose beyond anything that this world could give us. You see, the resurrection, it, it frees us and it commissions us to live boldly for Jesus Christ, not just one day, but this this day, you see, to live for his glory and for his kingdom and for his purposes. You see, instead of being concentrated about being concerned first about our own good, we can trust that Jesus is able to bring about our good as we follow him, as obey him, and as we follow him into risky situations, situations that require sacrifice or, or even mean hardship. You see, instead of Instead of hoarding resources for ourselves, we can give generously and we can give sacrificially knowing that we cannot outgive God what he has already given to us and that our true inheritance is kept for us in a place where it cannot be taken. You see, because Jesus' resurrection is true. Because of his resurrection, you and I, we can sing to Jesus today because he is alive. And, and we can pray to Jesus today and he will hear us because he is not dead. He is alive. And we can confess our sins today and he will forgive us and embrace us because he has already defeated Satan and sin and death. And he is alive. You see, the resurrection, it changes everything. See, and if you are here this morning and if you have not believed in Jesus' resurrection, if you have not put your trust and your faith in him alone to be the one who makes you right with God and the one who forgives your sin and, and gives you a life eternal with him, then I hope this morning that as we have studied the evidence about Jesus' resurrection, I hope that you have, have seen that there is convincing and compelling evidence to believe that Jesus indeed did rise from the dead. And my heart is that you would be led by the Spirit of God to, to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to ask him to come and be the leader of your life, to be the one who rules and reigns in your life just as he does in all things.
what you can be confident of is if you ask him to do that, he will because he is alive. And some of you are, are here this morning and you are Christians, but you have been wavering in your faith. And my heart this morning as we have taken a look at the evidence about Jesus' resurrection is that you might be encouraged that you might be solidified in your faith, that what you might know beyond a shadow of the doubt is that it is not foolishness to believe in Jesus' resurrection. It's wisdom. So when you're ready, those of you who are Christians this morning, you have, who have put your faith in Jesus and your, your hope in his life, his death, and his resurrection to be the thing that makes you right with God, the thing that will eventually restore you into right, eternal, actual relationship with him, or if that is something you have believed for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's two tables, one on the left and one on the right. You just go back and you dip the bread into the juice, and, and that's how you take communion here at River City. No one's going to dismiss you. You just go as you feel led. You don't need to be a member here at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. See, last week we talked about how communion is about orienting our hearts around the past present and future reality of the gospel you see and what the resurrection does is the resurrection proves that we can be saved from satan and sin and death and that jesus is the one who saves the resurrection shows us the power that makes the life lived for jesus today possible and the resurrection gives us a hope for the future because it points us to the ultimate resurrection of all things the unshakable foundation in which our hope is placed in jesus and so what we're doing this morning as we take communion is we're celebrating the gospel together reminding ourselves of who jesus is and of all he has done and who we now are because of him you see in the only there communion it does not make you right with god it does not change your status or your standing with him in any way you see the bible is absolutely overtly incredibly clear there is one thing that can change your status and your standing with god and that is when you put by faith your hope in the person and the work of jesus his life lived for you his death died for you his resurrection resurrecting you to new life there is one thing that makes you right with god that changes your status and your standing and it's faith in him that's it so this morning as we worship as we celebrate together the risen king let us worship the risen king this morning confident sure that he is alive let us live resurrected lives unto him every day empowered by the same spirit that raised jesus from the dead and let us have a sure and confident hope let us set our hope on not tomorrow and not today but in the that day the ultimate day in which jesus will resurrect all things let us set our hope on that for our good but more than anything for jesus's great and abiding glory in this age and in every age that is to come. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come before you. God, we are so grateful that the evidence as we see it in Scripture, as we see it outside of Scripture, God, as we look at the evidence surrounding your resurrection, we are so grateful that the only explanation that makes any sense at all is that you indeed rose from the grave. God, it's not a foolish thing to believe. It is a wise thing to believe. God, and so we come asking that you by your Spirit would enable our hearts to believe those truths. 
God, that you would shape our souls and our minds so that we might be able to respond rightly to the evidence that you have laid out for us in your word and, and throughout history. You see, Jesus, we cannot respond to you unless you enable our hearts to respond. And so, God, I pray for those who are here this morning whose hearts have been hard to you. God, I pray that you, by your gracious and merciful spirit, God, that you would give them soft hearts so that they can respond to you. That the good news about your life and your death and your resurrection, that it might take root in their hearts and, and bear fruit ten and a hundredfold. And Jesus, we come to you and you say, we cannot respond rightly unless you enable us to. And so God, fill us with a, a hopeful confidence in you. God, cause us not to leave the door of the resurrection closed in our daily lives, but, in, but God, help us to see that the resurrection is the thing that gives us confidence and assurance in, in who you are every day, that we can trust what you have said. And God, we pray that the, the truth of the resurrection would point us to the power that we need, the same power that raised you from the dead is the same power that empowers us to live for you every day. God, we don't have that without you. God, and we ask that the, the hope of your resurrection that it gives us would, would help us to live in light of eternity instead of today. God, confident, hopeful in the one day that you will restore all things. And so, Jesus, we be a people who comes to you to confess our sin, to receive forgiveness, God, and to hope in the resurrected King of all. God, may you empower us to be your kingdom people, your resurrection people, in this world that you might be worshiped and glorified in and through our lives. We pray these things in your good name. Amen.